What is sustainability? Sustainable is defined as that which can be maintained over time. We know this is relative because nothing living can be maintained forever, but we're talking for many centuries at least. Sustainable also means meeting present needs without compromising future ones. It's a word that's been used carelessly to refer merely to practices supposedly more environmentally friendly than others. While it's good that the general concept of sustainability has become trendy, we have to match this with a cordon action, not greenwashing and the bare minimum, a concept that Robert Engelman describes in Beyond Sustainable. Unsustainable societies are ones that can't be maintained for long and will cease to function at some point. And actually, the concept of sustainability is one embodied in indigenous traditions. Chiefs would consider the impact of decisions on the seventh generation to come, something we clearly have neglected. So why is sustainability important, relevant, and how does it connect with inequality? Well, this issue is pressing due to its long-standing effects on people, species, and the planet, as well as because of its implications for our very near future. Scholars and scientists have all come to the shared consensus that action must be taken now and by all. These issues are intersectional and have to be approached as such. We need a collective effort for a collaborative undertaking. The effects of unsustainable practices are not shared equally among the human race. Human choices affect and exacerbate inequalities environmentally. This manifests in the form of environmental racism. The U.S. spends more money per capita on health than any other nation in the world, yet overall population health lags behind due to persistent and growing disparities in mortality, morbidity, and disability between whites of high socioeconomic status and less advantaged people of color. These disparities are frequently attributed to individual health behaviors, but that only accounts for a fraction of the story. Brule and Palo call for an investigation of the macro-level social and environmental factors that sustain and diminish health, focusing on socioeconomic status, access to health and social services, and neighborhood and community characteristics. They also explore the role of different exposures to environmental pollution in the production of health inequities, as people of color and poor people are the ones who tend to live near environmentally hazardous facilities, and therefore bear a larger share of the health burden from exposures. Environmental justice is the principle that all people and communities are entitled to equal protection of environmental and public health laws and regulations. Environmental racism describes the racial discrimination in environmental policymaking. This includes, quote, the enforcement of regulations and laws, deliberate targeting of communities of color for toxic waste facilities, official sanctioning of the life-threatening presence of poisons and pollutants in those communities, and the history of excluding people of color from leadership of ecology movements. Due to environmental racism, we see African Americans suffering higher than average rates of asthma, cancer, lead poisoning, infant mortality, deaths, lower life expectancy, and a greater exposure to dioxins and PCBs. We see Latino children who are much more likely to suffer from asthma, lead poisoning, exposure to contaminated water, pesticides, mercury, higher levels of stomach, cervical, and uterine cancer, some forms of leukemia, and a greater exposure to herbicides and pesticides. Native Americans are exposed to a greater number of psychological and physical stressors associated with military weapons testings, as well as threats to the safety of fish and other food sources. 
And lastly, Native Hawaiians have the highest cancer rates of any Asian American and Pacific Islander population in the United States. Rather than shifting the burden onto unprotected individuals, we have to eliminate the threat of harm before harm occurs and address inequities through targeted action and resources. One major racial ethnic disparity can be measured through the pollution inequity metric. This is what Tessum describes as a way of expressing a disparity between the environmental health damage caused by a racial ethnic group and then the damage that that same group experiences. So Tessum found that Black and Hispanic minorities bear a disproportionate burden from the air pollution caused mainly by non-Hispanic whites. What does this mean? Well, non-Hispanic whites experience what's called a pollution advantage. So they experience 17% less air pollution exposure than what they cause. Blacks and Hispanics, on the other hand, bear a pollution burden. So they're experiencing 56% and 63% excess exposure relative to the exposure that they cause. These inequities aren't just present in racial ethnic disparities. They're bad for the economy and they're toxic for the environment. As Holmberg describes, the poor are disproportionately vulnerable to the escalating effects of climate change, and their economic instability makes them even more easily affected. Furthermore, the relationship between the economy and the environment goes both ways. High economic equality is also bad for our environment. Why? Because, as Holmberg says, Quote, wealth ultimately converts into political power, and societies with high levels of wealth and income inequality leave those at the bottom less able to resist the powerful interests that benefit from pollution. On the other hand, we know that the rich are willing to pay more than the poor to keep a landfill incinerator out of their communities. Of course, we know that poor communities would just as much like to live in a clean and a safe environment, but they lack the resources to prioritize this. So environmental devastation is a byproduct of economic inequality too. It's also important to note that the motivations and practices driving our unsustainable present and future are corrupting our lands, goods, and people. In Aldo Leopold's The Land Ethic, he says, We sing our love for and obligation to the land of the free and home of the brave, yet soil. We send helter-skelter down the river. Water, we assume, has no purpose except to turn turbines, float barges, and carry off sewage. Plants, we exterminate whole communities without batting an eye. Animals, we have already destroyed many of the largest and most beautiful species. What the land ethic calls for is changing the role of humans from conqueror of the land community to plain member and citizen of it. This is describing a relationship that implies mutual respect. Leopold acknowledges that land use ethics are governed by economic self-interest, just as social ethics are, because people at the end of the day are willing to do the convenient and the bare minimum. But we need a much deeper change. By trying to make conservation easy, we've made it trivial, a point that ties back to sustainable babble and greenwashing. Eliza Griswold described the environmental revolution spawned by author and conservationist Rachel Carson. Carson engaged in the bitter battle between industries and politics as she worked to highlight environmental problems and present policy recommendations, pose moral questions, and demand personal action. Like Leopold, she knew that people would only protect what they loved, 
and so she worked to establish a sense of wonder about nature in her books. She appealed to concerned citizens and housewives who wanted to protect the health of their families and advocated against trying to dominate nature through chemistry, an arrogant idea. While Carson galvanized the nation, it's important to note that the context in which conversations surrounding the environment and sustainability have been framed have been largely reserved for and constructed by white perspectives, excluding people of color. Cronin specifically describes what he calls, quote, the trouble with wilderness, saying that wilderness was a place where one came against one's will, always in fear and trembling. The only value it had was the opportunity for human use, but there was little to nothing to offer civilized people in its raw state. But this changed towards the end of the 19th century, when philosopher and naturalist Henry David Thoreau declared wildness to be the preservation of the world. Before wilderness had been the antithesis of all that was orderly and good, but this quickly transformed into the opposite. Corners of the world were designated as sites with spectacular wild beauty, such as Niagara Falls or Yellowstone. There were two main sources of this transformation. Firstly, the sublime, one of the most important expressions of romanticism, and then the frontier, where the wilderness became the place to experience what it meant to be American. It's important to acknowledge that to protect wilderness was, quote, in a very real sense to protect the nation's most sacred myth of origin. There was a powerful sense among many Americans that wilderness was the last defense against the confining structures of everyday life, a place of rediscovery and individualism at the outer margins of society. This was especially popular among the elite and the wealthy as the wilderness became a place for recreation, transgressions, and, quote, an attractive natural alternative to the ugly artificiality of modern civilization. But in reality, the frontier had often been a place of conflict, plagued by invasions fighting for the control of lands and resources. Somehow, this savage image was lost and became a safe place more of reverie than of fear, while the original inhabitants were kept out by force. So Cronin goes on to say that wilderness was remade in this image. It was filled with moral values and cultural symbols, and he says that the concept of wilderness had to become sacred. These landscapes were deemed sublime, rare places on earth where one feels insignificant and is reminded of one's mortality. But what does this tell us? It tells us that sublime places are worthy of protection, and less sublime places are not. So wilderness ends up privileging some parts of nature at the expense of others. It was being tamed by those who were celebrating its inhuman beauty and domesticating it, making a spectacle out of it. We then have the myth of wilderness as virgin, uninhabited land, a myth that's especially cruel from the indigenous and Native American perspective, people who had once called that land home, people who had been violently displaced so tourists could, quote, safely enjoy the illusion that they were seeing their nation in its pristine, original state in the new morning of God's own creation. This removal of people to create an uninhabited wilderness is a reminder of how invented and constructed the American wilderness really is, as a product of the very history it seeks to deny and attempt of erasure of the history from which it sprang. Furthermore, by imagining that our true home is in the wilderness, 
Conan says that we forgive ourselves the home we actually inhabit. This actually poses a serious threat to responsible environmentalism. And beyond that, protecting landscapes, for example, the rainforest, in the eyes of first world environmentalists, often means protecting it from the people who live there. And these people who seek to preserve this this wilderness from the activities of native people who live there run the risk of reproducing the same tragedy that befell the Native Americans. All this to say that massive environmental and social problems are unlikely to be solved by these cultural myths that encourage us to preserve peopleless landscapes that have not existed in those places for millennia. This can become a self-defeating form of cultural imperialism. So Cronin says that we have to abolish the idea that nature, to be natural, has to be sublime, that it has to be perfect, it has to be pristine, remote, and untouched by humanity or the past, because that's not reality. As we poison nature, nature poisons us, something that Rachel Carson would say all of the time. Furthermore, environmental problems affect mainly poor people. We see children poisoned by lead exposure in the inner cities, famine, poverty, overpopulation, toxic waste exposure, and occupational health and safety issues in industrial settings. So class privileges are giving the wealthy the time and the resources to leave their jobs behind and, you know, get away from it all. And the protection of wilderness pits urban recreationists against rural people who actually earn their living from the land and productive labor is devalued. And furthermore, idealizing a distant wilderness often means not idealizing the environment in which we actually live and call home. We can't leave nature untouched by our passage, but we can decide what kinds of marks we wish to leave. Approaches and proposals for addressing these challenges drastically affect all human beings, though at different scales. Sen describes Malthus's argument that the population would continue growing to the point where only wars, famine, or other forms of mass destruction could stop and reverse it, and that the inability to keep up with food production with a growing population would lead to this crisis. In a clearly negative light, Malthus also argued for the override view, a harsh view enforced through varying levels of intensity. The override view includes horrifying non-consensual actions such as sterilization, refusing to offer housing or aid those with, quote, too many children, or China's one-child policy, for example. Malthus also opposed the public relief of poverty, saying that if the poor remain poor, they won't be able to have large or healthy families, and that aiding the poor would actually exacerbate the population problem. Furthermore, Malthus negatively contributed to the fears of being engulfed, which in the long term directed a lot of blame to brown countries through racist and anti-immigrant sentiments. Other proposed solutions call for female education and empowerment, family planning, and a developmental collaborative approach. Stahl actually proposes a circular economy as the alternative to our current economy, a new relationship with our goods and services that would save resources and energy and create local jobs. This change in economic logic would replace production with sufficiency, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and growing the workforce. These proposals for sustainable action are often spurred by the UN's SDGs, what are known as the Sustainable Development Goals. The SDGs are 17 sustainable development goals with 169 integrated and indivisible associated targets, 
a collective devotion to the pursuit of global development, empowering the vulnerable, taking into account all needs, and calling for action to change the world. These goals state commitments to end poverty, provide inclusive and equitable education, promote health and well-being, they emphasize human rights, and much more. But the SDGs weren't perfect. Many critics insisted that it would be hard to create accountability or focus any attention on the goals because of the number of goals and their complexity. Yet, as Kumar says, complexity is a good thing because the world is complex and efforts to improve it have to reflect that. He says that oversimplifying complex issues doesn't actually have benefits, that the complexity in the goals has allowed serious people doing the difficult work of solving global challenges to accurately communicate what needs to be done, while still aligning to a set of common global goals. Prior to the SDGs were the MDGs, which focused on averages and held only some countries accountable. This means that countries could be seen as successful even if many of its citizens remained in poverty because they were looking at averages. The SDGs, on the other hand, aren't about donors and recipients because they're owned by all countries. It's about leaders being accountable to their citizens and leaving no one behind. At a time of great uncertainty, when world leaders and corporate CEOs are trying to find their footing, the idea that the biggest global challenges are clearly laid out, have targets and metrics associated with them, and can only be solved in partnership, offers a much-needed roadmap. But we have an uncomfortably narrow window for making the choices and decisions needed to address these key challenges. As Solberg says, The oceans hold the key to sustainable development because we've produced a lot from the oceans, whether it's jobs, food, or energy. We thus have to maintain the ocean's capacity to regulate the climate and support biodiversity by managing the oceans better. Solberg says that oceans hold the key to solving many environmental tasks, such as eradicating hunger and extreme poverty, fighting disease and pandemics, combating climate change, creating jobs in developed and developing countries, ensuring affordable clean energy for all, and securing peace and stability. A lot more than you'd think. But unfortunately, as Solberg says, human activities are impacting the ocean through climate change, marine litter and pollution, and illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. Solberg says that this results in the loss of habitats and biodiversity, and the degradation of the world's marine ecosystems. Furthermore, climate change results in further long-term changes in the climate system, such as sea level rise and increases in ocean temperature. The conservation and sustainable use of the oceans and life below water is essential for reaching a number of sustainable development goals. It also invites other countries to join in on these sustainable paths, addressing threats to ocean and community health, creating jobs while solving global problems, and combining collective knowledge, innovation, and research. As we witness uneven progress across countries, we have to recommit ourselves to the full realization of sustainability goals. To bring the UN's vision within the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development to the forefront of our world today. The vision they have is of a world free of poverty, hunger, disease, where all life can thrive, free of violence and fear, with universal literacy, equitable and universal access to quality education at all levels, reaffirming commitments regarding human rights, universal respect for human dignity, justice, equality, diversity, equal opportunity, investments in children, and a world free of exploitation and full of sustained, inclusive economic growth and decent work for all. 
The 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development also lists the immense challenges we face, including billions living in poverty, denied lives of dignity, the rising inequalities within and among countries, unemployment, global health threats, more frequent and intense natural disasters, spiraling conflicts, violent extremism, terrorism, humanitarian crises, the forced displacement of people, natural resource depletion, desertification, drought, land degradation, freshwater scarcity, loss of biodiversity, climate change, and increases in global temperature, sea level rise, and ocean acidification. It's a lot. The next few decades are crucial in breaking out of these patterns that create instability. Acknowledging these interlocking crises and renewing this focus can pave the way for contributions in technology or innovation to slow the dangerously rapid consumption of our resources, as well as for identifying barriers. Sustainability rests on political will and calls for action across institutional gaps, policy, energy, international and local collaboration, protecting the environment, species, and ecosystems, and for changes within industry. It's a lot, but it has to be done, and it will.